I had a image that I was going to ask the, uh, if you guys in the booth, I don't know if y'all have that to pull up. It's an illustration we used at the beginning of the year. Um, we started 2021 with a series of 11 sermons called Rooted and Growing. And that series was focused on what we said was the essential nature of biblical community. Uh, or what I might call today, discipling community. And the central verse that we used in that series of messages was from Colossians 2. And in Colossians 2, Paul commands the church that as you or if you have received the person and the teaching of Jesus in salvation, now you must also live in the person and the teaching of Jesus. You don't just receive Christ and then go on your way, you receive Christ, and then you walk in Him, you live in Him. And Paul described the Christian life as an unwavering life established in belief, that the thing that establishes all of your being, all of your life, influences every decision that you make and the way that you see the world and the way that you live is now Jesus It's not just a part of your life, or he's not just a part of your life, but you do everything based on established in what he has taught and what he has done. Paul called it being rooted and built up, abounding in thanksgiving. And so we, during this sermon series, we use this illustration, and I ask you to think about your life in Christ as this great tree, that first and foremost, you are rooted if you are saved. You are rooted. You are firmly fixed in the ground. You are strengthened by what is below the surface that no one can readily see, which is Christ. And what you are tapped into in this life, the roots of your life are tapped into that which gives you nutrients. You're relying on Jesus day by day for everything. And your act of believing in everything that he has taught you, that you're willing to stake your life on it and to live as he has called you. That's the roots of your life. That's what gives you strength. That's what helps you in the midst of storms. And secondly, that when we live that way, when we are rooted in Christ and we are receiving from Him, and He is nourishing our life day by day, we grow up like the part of the tree that you can see and that everyone else can see. You grow up. You grow up toward God, and you grow out taller and fuller. When you are in a discipling community, that community, rooted in Christ, is advancing upwards toward God, and outward in spiritual growth toward other people. The further up we grow, the greater the reach of our branches or our limbs. If you think of the tree, the further out we can go, the more people we impact. All of that comes from being rooted in Christ, growing up together. And the branches are not just growing out just for people to look at and admire, but they're bearing fruit. The good works that we do. The good works of a discipling community. The good works, the characteristics that we should be producing together. And if you think about fruit on a tree, it has two purposes. One, it tells you the nature of the tree. You know what kind of tree it is because what's growing on it. The fruit we produce as a discipling community identifies us as Christians. But secondly, fruit nourishes people. They enjoy it. It's for their good. So what we're producing when we are growing up as a church together doesn't just show people we're Christians, but it actually benefits their life. Paul said thanksgiving is a product of the rooted Christian life, but we know that any trait, any act that the Holy Spirit creates in us and through us is also part of that fruit. 
And so we use this to illustrate what it means to be a Christian. The more we advance upward and outward, the more fruit we produce, and the more that people will glorify God because they know what we're about, and the more that we will help people. And the reason I'm bringing this back to our attention momentarily today is because of Peter's instructions to us beginning in verse 16. And what he's going to talk about today and what we'll look at again next week as well, I think dives right into the heart of what it means to be rooted. Because what he is going to talk about to us today and next week is how you can have confidence in what you believe. And what I'm going to try to bring you back to over and over is questioning, do you truly have confidence in what you believe? And if you do, what is that confidence based on? Because Peter is going to show us what he thinks we should base our confidence on, what we should be rooted in so that we can grow up together. So if you're a note taker and you have one of the handouts, let's look at this life truth together to start today. The Christian life is one that is rooted and growing in the person of Jesus. To be rooted requires that you have a strong and steadfast confidence that what you believe is true. Without this confidence, your zeal for God will not be sustained. Confidence is crucial. Being rooted is crucial. If you don't have roots, this tree is not going to produce anything. It's not going to grow. It's ultimately going to fall over. I use the word zeal as I have earlier today, to describe affection for Jesus in the Christian life. Or let me put it another way and ask you this question. How happy are you to live day to day as Christ calls you to live? How happy are you to live the Christian life? I'm not asking how happy you are to have the idea of going to heaven because... No one who truly believes in eternity wants to go to hell. I'm not asking how happy you are. I'm not asking you whether or not it's hard to live the Christian life. I'm asking you how happy you are day by day to stay near to Christ, to worship God, submitting to everything that he says, to influence other people by good works. Does that give you joy? Does that make you happy? Are you zealous for it or affectionate for it? Or if you were honest with yourself, is it a little bit of a begrudging walk? Where it's not just hard, but you know what? I really have to make myself do this, I feel like. And my submission to you today is that your zeal for God, your happiness in Christ is directly tied to how confident you are in what you believe. That zeal and happiness in God will, will never ebb and flow too dramatically for those who are firmly rooted. And the more firmly rooted you are, the more you will be sustained in that zeal. Not saying it won't be hard. I'm not saying there won't be days to where you don't feel joy. We're all going to have those moments. But I'm talking about a life that is steady. If your life with God looks like the mountaintop and then the valley, and the mountaintop and the valley, and your zeal for Him is up and down and up and down and up and down, and you disappear from the Word and prayer and worship for months at a time, and then something brings you back and you're pretty excited about it for a little while, and then all of a sudden something happens and you fade away again, I would submit to you that the problem is your confidence in what you believe. The confidence is in the rootedness. And that's what I think Peter is addressing today. Because those who are confident that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is real, that He's alive, that He's watching, that He's coming again to judge the living and the dead, they are the ones who are established and can be ready to be zealous and happy in Christ. So let's give some context to what we're talking about. That's our life truth, but I want us to give some context to this idea 
and what I think Peter is addressing in verse 16, 17, and 18. So in your handout, here's our context. Suffering in trials, cultural pressure, and false teachers all combined to threaten the confidence of God's people in the return of Jesus. I'm talking about in the day of Peter. Suffering in trials, cultural pressure, and false teachers all combined to threaten the confidence of God's people in the return of Christ. So let me pause right there, halfway through that statement, and I want us to just take a moment and consider how this is relevant for us today. If the act, excuse me, if faith is the act of belief, then doubt is the act of unbelief. When Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, if you just open up Galatians and you begin to read that, you will see that he opened the letter by saying to them, I am astonished at how quickly you have left the gospel. I'm astonished that when I was with you, you were receiving this message and you were zealous for it. But now that I have left, I'm astonished at how quickly you've turned away from it. And the issue... Paul says, was one of confidence because what had happened is when Paul left, these destructive influences had snuck into the the church and they began to preach a different gospel. They began to call into question everything that Paul had taught. And so the people in the church, their confidence in their faith fell. And Paul said to them, you were running so well. You were zealous. You were excited. You were obedient. You were bearing fruit. What happened? He asked them that question. Who has hindered you from this zealousness? Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? Their confidence in their faith had took a hit, and they were no longer running well. Their zeal was gone because these influences had come into their life and created doubt. And Peter, in Peter's context, the same thing is happening. These hindrances, these influences were coming into people's life and creating doubt. And because the doubt was created, their confidence was shook, so was their zealousness. They were suffering in trials. Don't you think when the moment comes where you began to suffer for your faith, that is a moment where the enemy can bring doubt in? Is this real? Is what you believe real? Is it worth this? Is it worth costing you your job? Is it worth costing you your ability to spend your money the way that you want to? Is it worth you having to stay in a situation that you're really not happy about? Is it worth you suffering to obey? Is it really worth it? That's the doubt that the enemy would bring in. Cultural pressure. The pressure to immorality. Don't you want to live like everyone else? Don't you want to do what everyone else is doing? Don't you want the freedom to just live and say and think however you feel? Are you sure that what you believe is is right? Because it's costing you a lot. And we have all these differing philosophies now, all these voices that are speaking into us, speaking into the culture, and they sound really good. They're plausible. They make sense. There are people that are reframing Scripture, that are actually going into the Bible and reinterpreting the Bible to say what they want it to say, and it sounds so good, and it creates doubt. And false teachers, people even that infiltrate the church, that pull people away, leaders who hurt people that they're supposed to serve, those who are supposed to be good stewards and they fail and the church erupts in disputes and disunity and you think, is this real? If that person would fall from their faith, is, is my faith real? And in Peter's day, these false teachers were coming in behind him. They were coming into the church. And one particular aspect of our faith that they were attacking is what the New Testament calls 
the parousia, the return of Jesus. It's the word that we translate advent, the coming, the arrival of God's Son. Each year we take time to celebrate the parousia, the advent. We look back on the return, on, on the first coming of Christ. We look forward to the second coming of Christ. When He will come to rescue His people and usher them into the kingdom of God in its fullness, and He will judge the world. But according to Peter, and if you look in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, there were scoffers, there were false teachers who were calling into question the people's confidence in the return of Christ. They were saying, Jesus is not actually going to return, or He's not going to actually return physically. And Peter says that the reason they were doing that in chapter 3, verse 3, is because of their sinful desires. In other words, they wanted to live the way they wanted to live. See, if Christ is going to return, this is true for us, if Christ is going to return, if that is a fact, and if one day we will stand before Him and He will judge, and we will have to give an account for our lives, that means something to how we live today. But see, if Christ is not going to come back and if He's not going to judge and He's not going to rescue and He's not going to call us to an account, then what difference does it make how we live? So rather than let faith shape their lifestyle, these false teachers developed a belief system that would let them have the lifestyle they wanted. And church, this is still going on. Still today. So likely what we see in verse 16, when Peter says, Christians, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus. Likely what Peter is addressing is these false teachers that were telling people that what the apostles were teaching about the return of Jesus was a fable, a myth. It was something that they had come up with and they had devised on their own. And Peter knew, Peter knew at the end of his life, he doesn't have much time left, he knew that if the confidence the church had in what he had taught, if the confidence that the church had in the return of Christ, if that confidence took a hit, then they would have little zeal. They would have little happiness for their faith. And it is like that for us today. We will have little happiness in obeying Christ if our confidence is not strong when we're called to suffer for what we believe. We will have little happiness to live the Christian life when temptation pulls at us to immorality and we want to give in to it, if we don't have confidence that we're going to stand before Christ one day. We are going to struggle with happiness in Christ when these other voices are speaking into our lives and they are saying things that sound so right and so plausible and so good, if we don't have confidence in what we believe, we're going to be tempted to shape what we believe based on what sounds good or how we feel. Because it feels right to go along with certain things in our culture and certain belief systems. It feels right. We want to do it. And if we're not confident in what we believe, we're not going to be happy to follow Jesus. So my question before that I put before us today and next week is how can we be confident that what we are rooted in is right? How do we know Christ will return? How do we know we will stand before Him? How do we know He will rescue us? How do we know He will judge the world? How do we know that our beliefs are right and any belief opposed to what we believe is wrong. Because you, you understand it sounds arrogant. It sounds arrogant to the world that we say what we believe is right and what you believe is wrong. So how do we know? Because there can really only be one truth. Truth is not relative. How do we know that we have it right? How do we know that happiness in God is the best kind of happiness? Every single day, the world is going to work to shake our confidence. 
How do we know? And so in your handout, going back to the second part of this context, Peter, knowing his time was short, sought to strengthen the church by presenting two pieces of authoritative evidence. He sought to strengthen the church by presenting two pieces of authoritative evidence. Number one, the testimony of the apostles. Number one, the testimony of the apostles. And number two, the prophetic word. Now we're going to address the second one next week, the prophetic word. Today, we're going to focus on the testimony of the apostles. In verse 16, Peter refutes the argument of the false teachers that the apostles had created cleverly devised myths when talking about the power and the coming, the parousia of Jesus. And here's how he refutes it. We were eyewitnesses. We have seen and heard and been witness to the glory of Jesus. And we know for certain that his parousia, his second advent, is assured. He is coming again, and we are telling you all that we have seen and all that we have heard. So let's talk for a few minutes about this apostolic witness. The apostles were eyewitnesses to Christ. In John chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples, these men who would go to start the church. He says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will bear witness about me. And you also, apostles, will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Jesus planned that these men who had been with him from the beginning would bear witness about him to the world and that through them the Holy Spirit would start the church. So what were the apostles' eyewitnesses to? And I'm going to have you flip to a couple of places in Scripture. If you have a Bible, would you open that up this morning? If you don't have a physical copy of God's Word and you would like one, we would love to give you that as a gift today. So before you leave, let me know, or you can let Nick know, and we will get you a copy of God's Word. What were the apostles' eyewitnesses to? First of all, go to 1 John chapter 1. The very beginning of 1 John, and John writes, and in your handout, they were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus The apostles were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. So let's read what John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, the first four verses. That which was from the beginning, talking about Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And here's why. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship was with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy... And he's probably talking about all of our collective joy together may be complete. John lays it out over and over. We have seen this. We have heard this. We have seen Christ and all that he has done. We have heard Jesus and all that he has done. We have touched him after his resurrection. We have seen his glory. And now we are telling you everything we've seen, everything we've heard. It is up to you to believe it. But we have, we have seen this. And this is our testimony to you so that you might believe and that you might have fellowship with us. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. Number two, they were also eyewitnesses to the signs of Jesus. They saw his life, they saw his signs. When we went through the Gospel of John, we talked about how signs are miracles that point to a greater reality. 
The things that Jesus did were not just miraculous works, but they were miraculous works that pointed to deeper spiritual realities. And at the very end of John, at the very end of the Gospel of John, when he is wrapping everything up, John says that it's me, it's John, who's bearing witness about these things and have written these things, and that knows that this testimony and everything that I've written to you is true. And then he goes on to say, there are so many other things that Jesus did that were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain all of the books. John gets to the end of his gospel and he says, we have seen Jesus and we have seen him do miracles and signs and wonders. And if we were to try to tell you everything he did, we'd never have time to do it. We couldn't write it all down. It would be impossible. That is his eyewitness. That is his testimony as an apostle. They saw the life of Jesus. They saw the signs of Jesus. Number three, they saw the transfiguration of Jesus. This is the one that Peter deals with back in 2 Peter chapter 1. The transfiguration of Jesus. Looking at verse 16. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain." What is he talking about there? He is talking about an event that is covered in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It falls right after Peter has made his confession about who Christ is. Where Peter is talking about, and the disciples are talking about, all the different thoughts that people have about Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church. Talking about the faith, the declaration that he was the Son of God. And then right after that, right after that, Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem to be crucified. And Peter said, no, that will never happen. And Jesus looked at him and said, get behind me, Satan. So Peter's experiencing some highs and some lows here. And the Bible says, in a very rare occurrence where they date it, about six to eight days later, Jesus took them on a mountain. Only three of them. Peter, James, and John. Of the twelve, there were only three who Jesus led into this moment. He declared to the disciples, some of you who are standing here, will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And then He took them on this mountaintop. And there He led them to pray. And the Gospels say that as Jesus was praying, He was transfigured before them. That the appearance of His face was altered. And it began to shine like the sun. And His clothes were radiant, and one of the gospel writers said, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. They were white as light. And as this is happening, from the dead appears Moses and Elijah. And they talk to Jesus. And the gospels say, that the apostles, the three men there, were terrified. And of course it was Peter that breaks the silence. And he offers to do the one thing that makes sense. Let me make some tents so we can all camp out here on the mountain. Probably an allusion to one of the festivals of the Jews, the festival of the booths. We don't have time to get into that today. But Peter even says in the Gospel of Mark, I didn't know what to say. We were terrified. And as this is happening, 
as Jesus' face is altered and his clothes are white, whiter than anything they can describe, and as Moses and Elijah are there, a cloud descends and overshadows them, just like in the Old Testament when the cloud of glory came to the mountain where Moses met with God. And from that cloud and in that cloud, as it envelops them, the apostles, the three men, fell down on their faces, terrified as they entered the the cloud, and they hear a voice audibly. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus goes to those three men on their faces and he says, get up and have no fear. And they get up and Moses and Elijah are gone and they all come down off the mountain. And Jesus tells them, do not tell anyone what you have seen here today until after my resurrection. When it came time for Peter to say, church, this is not a cleverly devised myth. This is not something we came up with. The thing that was on his heart to talk about was that moment on that mountain where he saw Jesus in his glory as God. Nothing like he could describe. And he says to the church, when they say to you, that we are just preaching to you myths? No, we saw His majesty. We saw His glory. We saw His face changed. We saw His clothes whiter than anything we could ever imagine or humanly possible. This was not a vision. This was not a dream. This was not our imagination. We saw it and we heard this booming voice from heaven that said, This is my son. Listen to him. So we are listening to him. For the rest of our lives, no matter what it cost us, we are listening him to him and you will never tell us that he's not coming again because we've seen his glory. And we want you to have fellowship with us. We want you to experience what we're going to experience one day. We want you to see what we have seen and you will if you believe. The apostles were the Eyewitnesses to the transfiguration. Number four, they were the eyewitnesses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They saw him die and they saw him raised to life. They saw him murdered and put in a grave and buried and Roman soldiers put in front of the tomb so that no one could get in or out and then they saw him alive. Not just one time, but multiple times. When you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, who also saw the risen Christ, is writing to the church in Corinth, and he's trying to help them be confident in what they believe. And he says, I delivered to you what I received, the gospel message that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with those Scriptures. And then Paul says this, as if to say, church in Corinth, if you don't believe me, understand this, He appeared to Cephas, Peter. And then He went to all the apostles, and they saw Him alive. And then there was this time that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. If it's a delusion, it's a grand delusion because some of them, Paul said at that time, have died, but most of them are still alive, which means what? Go ask them. They're still alive. Go ask them. I'm not making this up. It was over 500 brothers. We don't know how many women or children. Jesus appeared to them. Go talk to them. Then he appeared to James, and he appeared to all the apostles, and then last, Paul says, he appeared to me. The least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I had been persecuting the church. The apostles were eyewitnesses to the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and then finally, they were eyewitnesses to the ascension of Jesus. They saw him 
visibly before them ascend into heaven and disappear into a cloud. And how do we know that? You go to Acts chapter 4. And you see where Peter and John, two of these three, two of the three men on the mountain and two of the twelve apostles, they had healed a lame beggar. And the Jewish council was really upset about that. So they had them arrested. Not for just what they were saying, but for what they had actually done. And the council... In Acts chapter 4, they come together and they start having this discussion. And the discussion goes like this. What are we supposed to do with these guys? Because they've done this really notable thing that we can't deny. And everybody around here has seen it. And it's evident to the inhabitants of Jerusalem that there's something to them. So we can't go before all the people and say, this isn't real. So what do we do? And so their plan was... In chapter 4, verse 17, in order that this may spread no further, because we certainly don't want sick people being healed, that would be horrible. So this, so this doesn't spread any further among the people. Let's warn these two men, Peter and John, to not tell anyone else about Jesus. Don't speak to anyone about that name. And so they called Peter and John to them, and they charged them, don't speak or don't teach. We're going to let you go. We're not going to kill you. We're going to let you go. But don't you ever talk about Jesus again. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you'd made the whole thing up, if you knew you had made it up, and it was starting to cost you your freedom and your safety and your flesh, and you get arrested and you get warned, don't do this anymore, and it's all a delusion, it's all a fraud, don't you think you just go home quietly? Peter and John said, you decide if it's right for us to listen to you or to God, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You can't silence us because we don't have any other way to live except to tell everybody we can what we have seen and what we have heard. So let me make a gospel plea to you this morning. If confronted this week, if challenged this week as to why you believe what you believe, what would you say? If someone were to say to you, tell me why you believe why do you give your life to this? Why do you give your time to this? Why do you proclaim Christ? Why do you believe? What would your answer be? If someone said to you, you know miracles are impossible, right? You know there was no worldwide flood, right? You know the world wasn't created in seven days, right? You know that a man can't be put in a lion's den and live. You know that, right? You know all this is made up. You know evolution is the way that everything came to existence. You know that, right? What would your answer be? Would you go and try to scientifically disprove all of those things? Or scientifically prove all of those things? Disprove what they had said? What is your rebuttal? If this week you find yourself suffering for your faith and you find that voice coming into your head, is this real? Is this worth it? If you have an overwhelming temptation to sin and everything in you wants to give yourself to that sin and you hear that voice, why are you holding back from yourself pleasures? What is your answer going to be? If you come across a plausible argument on the internet that questions your faith, what will your response be? If you get disheartening news about disunity in a church or someone that you respected failing, if your stressful week is filled with cares that are pulling you away from God's Word and prayer, and that voice is in your head, it doesn't really matter, does it... 
Is it really important to give myself to these things? If everything that you believe is called into question and hits at your zeal and your happiness in God, what is the evidence that you will preach to yourself to keep yourself rooted in Christ? Are you going to tell yourself, well, you know what? The Bible has good ethical teachings. Are you going to tell yourself, well, I've experienced things. Look at the change that this has brought in my life. Are you going to tell yourself, I have a community. Look at the joy. Look at all the people that I love and that I'm a part of. Are you going to talk about the feeling that you have when you sing songs, the warm and fuzzies that you sometimes get when you're in a Bible study? I'm not saying that any of those things aren't real. I'm not saying those things aren't real or not sure. I say all the time, I want us to experience God. The Word says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience Him. I want us to experience those things. I believe in those things. But we have to admit that the reality is there are people in cults who experience some of what I just said. Warm, fuzzy feelings. Love of a group of people. There are people in the world who don't believe in God who follow good ethical, moral teachings. I'm asking what is the authoritative evidence that you will look to and consider with when your confidence is taking a hit? And what I'm saying to us today is that our trust must be in the person of Jesus and the facts about His life. It starts there. All of these other things are realities and can be real for us, the power of God and the experiences of God, but our foundation is not on those things. You know there are people in churches and denominations who have built their whole Christian life on what they experience. on miracles that they have seen and feelings they have had in church services, yet they fall away. Why? Because that is not the authoritative confidence that we're rooted in. We are rooted in the person of Jesus and facts about His life and the fact that He is coming again. And how do we know that's true? And the first thing Peter said is apostolic witness. We are eyewitnesses and we are calling you to believe what we are testifying about what we have seen and what we have heard. So this gospel plea in your handout, would you consider the manner of life of the apostles? Does it seem more likely to you that they lived and died out of strong conviction or cleverly devised myths? When you look at that evidence... What is your answer? When you consider Peter's life, is it more likely to you that this man who was a fisherman, an uneducated fisherman, who started following Jesus but was very impulsive, when Jesus would teach things, he would say, oh, no, 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 you're not going to do that. When Jesus was arrested, this man, Peter, Standing outside a building at Jesus' trial was asked three times, weren't you with him? And all three times this man said, no, no. And the third time he threw in some cursing, no, because he was afraid of death. Is it more likely that that man on his own came up with the courage to believe in a fraud that he himself had helped to come up with? and that for the rest of his life, he gave himself to that fraud to the point that he was crucified upside down for his testimony. Is that more likely? Or is it that he saw on a mountaintop the glory of Jesus? He saw him die. He saw him risen from the dead. And he said, for the rest of my life, I will tell people what I've seen. I have no other choice, no matter what it costs me. To the point that under Nero, he's executed for being a Christian. Which is more likely? Which is more likely that a man named Paul, 
who had everything. He was wealthy because of his religious belief. He was well known because of his religious belief. He had the things that we would say, this is what life is about, notoriety and money. And this man named Paul, when he heard about Christianity, said, this must be stopped. And so he began to formulate plans to stop Christianity by persecuting, arresting, and murdering Christians. Is it more likely that that man one day said, you know what, I think my life would be better if I actually joined with them. I'm going to help them in their fraud. I'm going to help them in their lies. I'm going to give up all this money and notoriety, and I'm going to submit myself to imprisonments and beatings and poverty so that I can die under persecution because I think what they got going on is good and I want to be a part of this myth. Is that more likely? Or that this man on the road to Damascus saw the glory of the risen Christ and was blinded and then released from his blindness by Jesus and told, now go be a witness for me. And he said, for the rest of my life, I'll give it all up. The money, the notoriety, I will suffer imprisonments, I will be beaten, I will be murdered because I've seen the glory of the risen Jesus and everything is about him. Which one is more plausible? I submit to you that we can believe the testimony of these men. And that is ultimately what Christianity is about. You believe the testimony of what they have seen and heard, or you reject it. There's no in-between. I believe there was a worldwide flood. I believe Daniel went into a lion's den. I believe David killed Goliath. I believe Jonah was in the belly of a great fish. But my faith doesn't rest on those things. It rests on the person and the facts about Jesus based on the authoritative evidence of the apostolic witness and the prophetic word. And we'll talk about the prophetic word next week that Peter says is even more sure than their witness. The second half of this gospel plea if you believe their testimony, would you thank God for His grace and would you give your life to prepare for the day you meet Jesus? 1 Corinthians 2 says, the natural person cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. So believe the evidence, but know that if you believe the evidence, it is because of God's grace. And if you believe the evidence, if you believe that Jesus is real, if you believe their testimony, they saw His glory. If you believe He's coming again, prepare to meet Him. You can't just say, okay, awesome. I'm going to go follow the world and, and do what I want to do. No. If you believe you're going to stand before Him, if you have confidence in that, if you believe you are going to speak face to face with the risen Christ and He is going to call you by name, and He is going to ask you to give an account for your life, and He's going to reward you for how you lived for Him. If you really believe that, your life has to be radically different. So prepare with everything you have. If you have a day left, a month left, a, a year left, or four decades left, use every bit of it to prepare for that day you meet Jesus. How can you take your career and prepare for that day? How can you take your resources and prepare for that day? Your marriage, your children, your life, your gifts, your church. How can you take it all for His glory and prepare for that day you meet Christ? That's what life in Jesus is about. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. You guys can bring the lights down. I want to plead with you this morning. Have confidence that leads to happiness in Christ. I have no problem using the word happiness in Christ. Happiness and joy is actually much closer tied together in Scripture than we sometimes 
think about, it is certainly not based on circumstances. We're talking about happiness in Christ. Doesn't mean life won't be hard. Doesn't mean that things won't be tough. But it does mean that you can have joy in Him. I plead with you this morning to believe the testimony of the apostles. Believe their eyewitness and ear witness accounts. Believe the plausibility of their lives and their deaths and have confidence in Jesus and beg God for zeal. I want to ask our prayer partners if they'll come up, those who are going to be praying for people this morning. In particular, this group of people will certainly pray for anything that you have going on. So if you need a miracle in your life, come and ask for a miracle. Ask for mighty works. Ask for God to do that which you need to be done. But I want to implore you this morning that if you find yourself struggling with doubt, struggling in your confidence, struggling in zeal, would you be willing to be bold enough to ask these people to help pray for you? There's not a person in this room that's not struggled with those things. All of us struggle with confidence. All of us hear those words, those thoughts in our minds. Is it real? Is it worth it? Plead for confidence. Plead for zeal. And trust that God will answer. Father, I ask this morning that you would make the testimony of your apostles authoritative evidence that gives us confidence. Our faith is not in them. Our faith is in the person of Christ. But help us to believe their testimony. Because your word calls us to. Help us to believe through their lives and their deaths what you have done. Thank you for every person in this room who has believed their testimony. Because it is a gift of grace. Would you please strengthen us in it? Would you please protect us from doubt? Would you please strengthen our confidence in you that we might be happy in Christ? But if there is anyone in this room or watching this on replay at a later time who doesn't have that confidence, would you cause them, allow them, enable them today to believe upon Jesus through the testimony of these apostles and be saved? Through this prophetic word that we have been given, Would you let today be the day of salvation? Those of us in this room right now who have family members who don't believe in the gospel, would you silently call their name out? If you have friends or co-workers who don't know Jesus, would you silently call their name out? God, you hear these names. Would you please save them? Would you please give these people that have been mentioned confidence in the apostolic witness and the prophetic word? And would you please transform their hearts and save them? Would you please bring them to know you? And would you please help each person who has called their name out to be a light and an influence to somehow point them to Christ? But above all, would you work in their lives to bring them to Jesus? Protect us from doubt, God. Give us confidence in you. Help us to sing now with zeal and happiness and trust in your word. And let us not fall. In your name we pray. Amen.